0: you have your Bibles, please meet me in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18, this service. Uh, First service, uh, we were in Hosea chapter 3, looking at uh, the theme of love. And then I'm sitting back there and I just sense the Holy Spirit calling an audible. So we're going to do something different this service. Uh, We'll be in Matthew chapter 18, beginning verse 21. I bring you great greetings from the land of the Golden State Warriors, the uh, NBA champs. I know y'all gonna, uh, we beat y'all the other night. Look, we were playing with half a deck Uh, Steph Curry wasn't there. Draymond Green wasn't there. Y'all pretty much beat our B team, all right? So uh, anyways, now that I've completely alienated you, uh, let let me say thank you to Pastor Lucas for extending me the great invitation to come and to just be with you all and to hang out uh, with you all and share with you all from the Word of God. Uh, Love everything about Pastor Lucas, except for the fact that his wife is a Packers fan. My wife is a Bears fan, so uh, uh, let's just say they will not be riding tandem bikes together or going on vacation anytime soon. Uh, But uh, it's just been an absolute joy uh, to be able to get to know him a little bit and to hear his heart uh, for you all. Well, there's a clock on me, 38 minutes and 35, 34, 33 seconds. Put a clock on a black preacher is, I feel discriminated against right now. It's the last service. What do you need a clock for? <laughs> I was preaching at a Presbyterian church in North Carolina not too long ago. Whenever I'm a guest there, I always ask the question, how long do I have? And the pastor shocked me. He says, oh, dear brother, we are a spirit-filled, spirit-led church. The Holy Spirit is in charge here. Uh, you let the Lord use you. But the people leave at 12. 12. <laughs> so uh, I will definitely try to be sensitive to that let me, let me read the text uh, and then pray we can offer up some thoughts and uh, go on about the day's affairs pick me up in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 18 Matthew writes then Peter came up and said to him speaking of Jesus Lord how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him, make note of this phrase, 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. In just a few moments, we'll see how ridiculous that statement is. If you want to know what a definition of forgiveness is, biblically, verse 27 is the definition. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant, here it is, released him and forgave him the debt. And his master summoned him and said to him, Are you kidding me? Your translation doesn't say that. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now verse 35, as my youngest used to say when he was little, freaks me out so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. Not if you forgive your brother from your mouth, like that's easy, right? If you do not forgive your brother from your heart, that's a tough word. Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you go to hell. Now hear me, he's not preaching work salvation. He's not saying forgive to get into heaven. That's works. We don't believe in that. But instead, Jesus is saying the way you know that heaven has gotten into you is you forgive and forgive and forgive. In other words, an unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron. Christian who holds a grudge, It's an oxymoron, it's a contradiction in terms. Let me pray and then we can dive in. Father, it's always a joy when I hop on planes and see what you're doing in other sections of the vineyard. Uh, I can get so insular and just so um, tunnel visioned into what you're doing in Silicon Valley that I tend to forget Uh, We're not even close to being the center of the world. It's a big world, and there's so much more going on than what's happening in my zip code. And so thank you, God, that you're alive and well and working here in the Toronto area. God, it's a joy to be here, but these people, Lord God, they don't need to hear what I'm going to say. They need to hear what you're going to say. And so, Lord God, would you speak through me this cracked earthen vessel this piece of clay that's in your hand. Um, God, you've spoken through in the scriptures, donkeys and bushes. Um, Who am I? Give us ears to hear, no matter where we may be on the spiritual spectrum. Uh, Many have grown up in the church, others first time in the church. Um, Some walking with you for decades, others were here today and they would say, I'm not Christian. But would you speak a word to all of us? Knock on our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. His name was Charles Roberts IV. He was a 32 year old man who had found himself frustrated with life, he had found himself deeply disappointed. We all understand what the definition of disappointment is. It's 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 that space, that gap between expectations over here and real-time experiences over here. We we, we, we call the chasm between what you were expecting and what you are experiencing disappointment. Ever been there? Ever written the script? And then life comes at you fast. And what you're dealing with is nowhere near what you had thought it would be. This was the case with 32-year-old Charles Roberts IV. He was deeply disappointed. In fact, he decided that he was going to take his disappointment out on God with the local God-fearing community there in Pennsylvania known as the Amish. His plan that day was was simple and yet horrific. He sat down first and wrote his own suicide note. He thought through what he was going to do. He was going to get paraphernalia, barge into the schoolhouse there at the local Amish community, assault these young school-age girls. Once he had done what he wanted to do with them, he was then going to take out his gun and kill them. So he buys all of his paraphernalia, writes the suicide note, hops into his car, speeds down the freeway there, pulls over at the appropriate exit, gets out of his car, barges into the local Amish schoolhouse, finds ten ten-year-old girls, just as he's trying to bind them with duct tape. Mercifully, someone had called the cops and he heard the sirens coming, so he's now got to expedite his plan. So he now just gets to the shooting part and unloads round after round after round into these 10, 10 10-year-old girls. And then he takes his own life. Five of these girls die instantaneously. The other five were clinging for dear life in the local hospital. I don't know if you can remember this early 2000s story, but as word began to seep out to the global village, how our hearts ached at the monstrosity of such an act. What kind of deranged individual would do such a thing to school-age girls? And then we caught wind that this local Amish community did not have health insurance. And so as the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months, their bills began to mount and rise. And it's here where the global village stepped in in an astounding way in acts of generosity. We, we gave tons of money to care for their bills, so much so that when it was all said and done, we, we actually gave them a million dollars over what they needed. It's here where the local Amish community gathered. These elders sat down to contemplate what to do with the excess million that they had and they bantered back and forth in this meeting when all of a sudden one of the elders said, what about the widow of Charles Roberts IV? We hear she has kids, she has a family, her husband has taken his life. Who will look after her? Who will care for them? It was decided immediately and voted upon what they would do. They marched over to her house, hugged her and embraced her and said, we forgive you. We hold no grudge against you and presented her a check for one million dollars saying, look after your kids, look after your family, we release you. It's at that moment where, where, a, lo- where a local reporter shoved a microphone into one of their faces and just was baffled by it in a sarcastic, cynical way. He said, forgive, need I remind you what her husband did to your children? How can you forgive? And I love the local Amish elder's response. He shrugged his shoulders at the notion of how he could forgive, and he simply answered, because we're Christian. That's what Christians do. We forgive. If the insignia of the world is vengeance, then the badge of the believer is forgiveness. How do I really know that I'm saved? The genuineness and true metal of your Christianity cannot really be discerned when all is going well in your life. It's easy to be Christian when you are when you're sitting in a cushioned seat environment. When the money is rolling in, the job is going well, you're in one of those rare seasons where the kids are being compliant. It's easy to be Christian when the relationships are humming along and when people are acting the way they should be acting. I hear Jesus saying, what credit is it to you, he asks in the Sermon on the Mount, if you love the lovable? Even the Gentiles do that. But How do I really know that I'm saved? Jesus says, if you really want to look under the hood of your heart and discern what's really going on, you treat folk who hate your guts how do you handle people who despise you and mistreat you how do you how do you relate to people in which you've got one nerve left and they're breakdancing all over it How do you handle that dad who walked out on you at a tender age in your life when you needed him? How do you treat that ex who wronged you? No, no, you weren't the perfect spouse. But they betrayed you. Violated you. How do you handle that boss? Who is passive aggressive? Who orchestrates a no-win situation for you? How do you, how do you handle that person you made a handshake deal with and They reneged on their promises. How do you relate to that great friend of yours who's gossiped about you? Who's lied on you? To be sure, our passage is concerned not with reconciliation, it's concerned with forgiveness. Never confuse the two. Yes, I know, you can never be reconciled without forgiving. But you can forgive without reconciling. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. I love it. As best as you can, be at peace with all people. That, that verse blesses me because what it seems to imply is there are times when I do my absolute best. But because it takes two to have a healthy relationship, at times there's a loophole. So I need to be real clear before we excavate this text. This text is not about whether or not you need to get back with your ex. This text is is for sure not about how you handle someone who's abused you. Well, let me just stop right there and clear that up. You can forgive and seek legal justice. God is both a forgiving God and a just God. But where there's no room is for vengeance. God says, vengeance is mine. This text... Is not about reconciliation. That's another sermon for another time. Maybe I'll get invited to preach here when Golden State sweeps you guys in four games, but (laughs) this text is about forgiveness. You see, while there's a loophole for reconciliation, because reconciliation takes two, there is no loophole for forgiveness. Forgiveness takes one. Matthew chapter 18 is all about relationships. In fact, did you know that Jesus is only documented using the word church twice? Both times in Matthew. The first time is in Matthew chapter 16. Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, That's right, Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, two chapters later, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is talking about what do you do when you've reached a relational impasse with someone in the church? Let me just stop right here and say this. If you're here today visiting and you're not a member of a local church, you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian. I don't know how they do in Canada, but in the United States, there's something non-Christians do to church people that I don't like. They act as if church people have a monopoly on hypocrisy. I know they don't do that here in Canada, but they do that in the United States. I'll own, are there hypocrites in the church? Absolutely, but we ain't the only ones with hypocrites. Wherever you put people together, there's going to be hypocrisy. Whenever you put people together in an organization that has ideals, there's going to be hypocrisy. They're in the church house, the frat house, in sororities, wherever there's people. So Jesus tells us what to do. He says, if someone sins against you, go and have a conversation with them. Don't hold a prayer meeting on them cloaking your gossip in prayer, actually have a conversation. If that doesn't work, take some people with you. If that doesn't work, take the elders. Now we come to our text in verse 21, and I can just see our boy Pete. Peter is still stuck on what Jesus has just taught on. I love it. He asked Jesus a question. Now, Lord, ah! How many times will my brother sin against me, and I have to forgive him? Now, let me just stop you right here. You would think if you asked Jesus a question, you'd give him space to answer. Not our boy, Pete. Peter asks Jesus a question and doesn't even give Jesus, the all-knowing God, an opportunity to answer the question. Peter says, how many times will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Seven times? Now he had to say it like that. He had to say it with a smile. Seven times? Why is he smiling as he's saying it? Because in Peter's day, the rabbis actually taught you only had to give three mulligans, you only had to forgive three times. Peter takes the number three, multiplies it times two, adds one to land him on the number of completion, seven. He thinks he's going over, above, and beyond. That's why he had to have said seven times? Jesus, as he always does, takes his proverbial pen and bursts Peter's bubble. I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, I'm not a math guy. I went to Bible college I think 70 times 7 is 490 times. And some of you are literally saying, Oh, praise God, because this person in my life is on 489. (laughs) We understand what Jesus is doing here. He is employing a rhetorical uh, device called hyperbole. He is exaggerating to make a point. I got three teenage boys, 17, 16, and 14. Pray for me. I use hyperbole all the time, although many times it feels like I'm being accurate. I've told you a million times, take out the trash. I probably have told him a million times, but you get the point. I'm exaggerating to say, you should just be doing this. This is what Jesus is saying. He's not calling us to keep count, because remember what Paul says, love keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, Jesus is saying our horizontal forgiveness of one another is to know no statute of limitations, is to know no expiration date, because the vertical forgiveness we have received from God in Christ knows no statute of limitations or expiration date. To be a Christian means I forgive and 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 I forgive. forgive That's the point. To buttress his point, he now tells a story. It's a fascinating one. He tells a story of a young man, I don't know if he's young, but we'll call him young, of a young man who has found himself in debt. He owes 10,000 talents. Now, we don't grasp this, but you should understand, the annual budget for the region of Galilee in Jesus' time was 300 talents. This guy owes 10,000 talents. I don't know what his interest rate was. You talk about predatory lending. One scholar says this guy owes millions of dollars, another billions of dollars. I like this one. Another scholar says what this person owes this man is like putting America's debt to China on one person. And I love what he says, please be patient with me, (laughs) and I'll pay you everything. And what does this guy do? He has mercy on him, and he lets him go, forgiving the dead. Three quick lessons about forgiveness. Number one, forgiveness is always irrational. Listen, what I want to say to this guy is, look, I know you're not going to recoup China's debt. I know you're not going to recoup all of it. But for you to just let them completely go and get nothing back, are you crazy? And I think Jesus is saying that's kind of the point. If it doesn't have a little bit of crazy to it, It's not forgiveness. What's rational is to keep score. What's rational is you do something to hurt me, I do something to hurt you back. Is this a safe place? Can I confess my sins to you? Listen, I'm a black preacher. I'm used to people talking back to me. Um, You all are incredibly silent. And because you're silent, I don't know if you're getting it, which makes me preach longer. So if you want me to preach faster, you need to talk to me, okay? Talk to me. Is this a safe place? Okay, you want me to hurry up. All right, I got it. I love mafia movies. Now as a black man, I shouldn't love mafia movies because if you've ever seen one, and if you've ever seen a black person in a mafia movie, you know they've got about two minutes of screen time <laughs> before they get killed. See, some of you are laughing at that because you've seen it, but you were just judging me for saying I like mafia movies. Anyways, there's this great movie. Um, it, it's, it's starring Kevin Costner and Sean Connery. came out in 1987. And, and in this movie, they're about to attack Al Capone's safe house. And right before they go in, Sean Connery stops Kevin Costner and says, listen, we're about to stir up some mess, and it's going to be an all-out war. And you need to understand, if they pull a knife out on us, we pull a gun out on them. If they send one of ours to the hospital, we up the ante and send one of theirs to the morgue. Back and forth back and forth, never give up, up the ante, and I love it. Sean Connery says, that's the Chicago way. My concern is for so many Christians in our relationships, we're living not the Jesus way, but the Chicago way. And listen, so sometimes it's overt. And it's just crazy. Like my wife, she's got this great friend that she got saved with. What this friend of ours can be a bit of a hothead and she was telling us this story. She's in LA trying to get on the 405 freeway, trying to merge in. Person next to her won't let her merge in for no good reason, almost runs our friend off the road. She gets really ticked off um, and speeds down the highway, catches up to this woman and motions to her to roll down her window. Now why in 2018, this is still the sign for roll down the window. It should be that and not that. I, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know. Um, so she motions for her to roll down the window. They're going down the 405 freeway about 70 miles per hour. This woman rolls, da- rolls down her window and our friend has grabbed a fistful of change and just chucks it at her. Going 70 miles down the freeway. Now listen, I've only been to Canada, I think this is my second or third time. You all strike me as incredibly nice people. Like so nice that I, I want to actually make one of you mad just to see what you would do. <laughs> And and, and I'm guessing many of you would never do that. But we can be incredibly passive-aggressive, can't we? So you do something to me I don't like, and every time you called prior to that, I used to pick up the phone right away. Now I'm praising God for caller ID. I erase your phone number. I emotionally moonwalk away from you. I all of a sudden get too busy. I've cut you off in my heart. It may look different, but that's still the Chicago way. Instead of having a conversation where you sit down and name the offense, you just cut them off. Some of you are incredibly lonely people who don't really have deep, meaningful, authentic relationships Because you have a track record of the moment someone does the slightest thing to hurt you, you set up a wall. So here you are barricaded by your walls. Whatever psychobabble you want to call it, the Bible just cuts right to the chase and says it's unforgiveness. And if you want healthy relationships that last the long haul, you need to have a little bit of crazy in you and do something irrational and let it go. Secondly, not only is forgiveness irrational, but in our last 10 minutes and six, five, four seconds, forgiveness is costly. I mean, just think about it. For this guy to go, hey, look, man, you're good. I know you owed China's debt, but I'm just gonna let you go. For him to not get anything back, he's gotta take a personal financial hit. It's Tim Keller who said at the end of the day, forgiveness is a suffering. That the forgiver is a sufferer. What does he mean by that? When you wrong me, my fallen Adamic nature in my flesh, I want to attack you back and inflict pain and suffering on you in some kind of way, either either lashing out or passive aggressive, whatever it may be. I, I once uh, counseled a, a married couple uh, in, in our church and and she got upset that he did something and what he did was completely wrong. And so instead of her letting it go and working through it, she just kind of I'll, we got kids in here. She just kind of withheld the spoils of marriage for 18 months. So you wrong me, I'm going to inflict suffering on you. But Tim Keller says for the person who forgives, we inflict suffering not on them, but on us. We 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 make our flesh and our lust for vengeance starve and suffer. But when we do that, we put ourselves in the company of Jesus who suffered on the cross in the ultimate act of forgiveness, saying, Father, forgive them. Anybody here familiar with Cory ten Boom? Tinboom ten Boom spent time in a Nazi concentration camp, not because she was Jewish, but because her family harbored Jews. While there, she witnessed the murder of her beloved sister the hands of one of the Nazi guards. Years later, she's out. She's preaching at a church. She gets finished preaching down front, shaking hands. And here she is shaking hands. In the middle of shaking hands, she she sees an individual that looks familiar, but she just can't place him. And he's coming down the aisle with his hand outstretched saying, Corey, Corey, I'm a Christian now. Do you forgive me? The man who played a role in killing her sister, Corey. Corey, I, I, I am a Christian now. Do you forgive me? And this is what she's thinking as she's coming. Listen, she writes, "I had to do it. I knew that." The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, I love this, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart for a long moment we grasped each other's hands the former guard and the former prisoner hear it I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then listen here's what I love she says first of all I didn't feel like doing it I love that but she says in so many words I had to allow my faith to override my feelings there's a pastor who says, always let what you know trump how you feel. Some of you, you're, you're sitting now and the Holy Spirit's talking to you and you're, you're seeing pictures of people that you're, you're nursing grudges towards and, and you have good reasons to. And you're saying, I just don't feel like it. I just don't feel like it. And you can give yourself a million excuses. If you wait to forgive when you feel you'll never get around to it. love it. She says, I didn't feel like it, but I had my faith override my feelings. And then notice what she says. She says, once I stepped out on faith and obeyed God, then the feelings came. She says, I had never known God's love as intensely as I did then. Watch this. There is a direct correlation between your horizontal experiences and treatment of others and your vertical relationship with God. You know what Jesus says Sermon on the Mount? If you are in worship and there remember that your brother has something against you. I love this as a pastor, by the way. Leave your gift at the altar and go. I love it. He doesn't say take your gift. He says leave it, leave it. In the Greek, he could have said, text it, go online, give it. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't act like me and you are okay in worship. When you are not in right relationship with people I created in my image. If you have not done as best as you can, with a fellow image bearer to shore up that relationship, you will only get so far with God. Finally, this guy's a trip. He gets freed, finds a guy who owes him a couple hundred, a hundred denarii. You know what that is? It's a few dollars. <laughs> Just get the theme. Starts choking him. Pay what you owe. The king gets word of this. He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've been forgiven China's debt. (laughs) And you're tripping off of a McDonald's Happy Meal? Don't you see the point here? Don't you see how hypocritical unforgiveness is? God's saying... I have forgiven you for everything you've ever done, are doing, and will ever do to break my heart. Let me just get this straight. And you're stuck on one morsel of gossip? So the king says, Put him in jail. Forgiveness is irrational, forgiveness is costly. Thirdly and finally, forgiveness is free. Watch it. When there's forgiveness, he's out of jail. He's free. When there's no forgiveness, he's boxed in, he's trapped, he's incarcerated. You know, I've been doing pastoral ministry for a lot of years. And I can spot people with forgiveness issues a mile away. They tend to walk around like this. Not literally. But you can only get so close to them. They hold you at bay with sarcasm or you're out with them and there's just this emotional distance. You can never really connect with them. Some of it, it's... It's bitterness and cynicism that's gotten a root into them. They're just so stinking negative. I guarantee you at some point something happened. And they just said never again. And they thought that decision would hurt others when in reality it hurt them. Close with two stories. When I was in Bible college, I was called the N-word. I was 19 years old, and man, just emotional immaturity on my part. I didn't forgive. And I just said, man, I just I just have a problem with white people. I don't like white people. Just phew, shut down. I remember graduating from Bible college and took a job at a black church in Southern California. And, and, and I just thought that's where I was going to be for the rest of my life. Um, I'm just going to be in the chocolate church. That's just what I want to do. And um, God loves it when you tell him what you will and won't do with your life. A couple years later, he calls me to go to a, a vanilla church. Um, not too long. So I, I, I march in there like Jonah marched into Nineveh. I'm going to set these people straight. My first Sunday preaching there, I invited my friends from the chocolate church. They came to the vanilla church and heard me preach. Afterwards, we're out to eat, and my friends read me the riot act. They said, what was that? What are you talking about? They said, we don't know that guy. You were angry and bitter. We felt no love from you. This set me on Odyssey for the next couple of weeks, just peeling back the layers. And here's the conclusion I reached. I let one person in one episode of my life when I was 19 have a personality-altering effect and power over my life. Watch it. And that person no—it was no longer thinking about me. I was in bondage. To one act of sin that I was holding on to. That's why forgiveness is the greatest gift, not that you give others, but that you give yourself. I close with this story. When Nelson Mandela became the president of the Republic of South Africa, first black president in their history. As you know, he came to a nation that was ravaged by apartheid. He said, We've got to do something. We've got to bring healing to this nation. And so you've read this. He started something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. If you want to know more about this, read um, Bishop Desmond Tutu's astounding book, No Future Without Forgiveness. These were commissions a little bit smaller than the gathering here in which people would gather. And there would always be kind of a judge overseeing the affair. And there would be a person who would articulate the offenses, how they were violated under apartheid, to the person who offended them. And this person would have to own it and there would be forgiveness and so on and so forth. Well, in this one scene, the judge says, ma'am, what would you like to say? middle-aged black woman stood up and said, Sir, during apartheid, this man, pointing to what happens to be a white man, this man came to my home in Soweto, him and his fellow comrades, took my husband, beat and bound him with ropes, das- doused him with gasoline, lit a match, set him on fire, and made me watch as my husband screamed to his death. Six months later, she said he came back. Took my 18-year-old child, my only son, my only child, beat and bound him with ropes, doused him with gasoline, lit a match, set him on fire, and made me watch as my only child screamed to his death. The man owned his offenses. The judge says, ma'am, is there anything else you want to say? Tears streaming down her face. She looked at this man who had done this to her she says sir you have taken from me my only husband you have taken from me my only child the love of my life I still feel like I'm a young woman with a lot of love to give sir I forgive you and if you would be so kind I would love it if you would come to my home once a week and let me cook for you and when you come can you bring your laundry let me wash it The audience was hushed. They were blown away. Who does this? Isn't it irrational? And all of a sudden, a group of teenagers in the back right corner spontaneously began to sing a song written by a former slave trader who got redeemed. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see. Oh, friend, you don't need to go to seminary to figure this story out. Don't you see? We are the servant. Our sins are the debt. And God, the merciful King, has released us. And you will never forgive others unless you are constantly in tune with the notion I've been forgiven 10,000 times. Would you bow your heads with me? Listen, I don't know how Canadians roll, and I'm not here to put anybody on the spot. What I'm about to ask is a big ask, but I believe that we must always ask the question, what do I do with what I just heard? I believe as I was talking, the Holy Spirit was walking the aisles. In fact, the very reason why I changed messages and preached this one is because I heard God say to me, forgiveness needs to be released in this house today. If you're here and you're saying, Pastor Brian, yes, there's someone in my life I'm nursing a grudge against. And yes, they may have wronged you and wronged you dearly. And no, this is not about reconciliation, another sermon for another time. But if you're here saying, I'm just hold on. And I wanna let this thing go. Just a moment, I'm gonna ask you to stand. And I wanna tell you why I wanna ask you to stand, not to embarrass you, but you're standing and admitting this is an incredibly hard thing. And I think that's a great first step to doing an even harder thing. And that's sending the text message, sending the email, having the cup of coffee, writing the letter, and just easing those words out of your mouth, I forgive you. That's hard. So before we get to that, can we just take an intermediate step and do something hard? If that's you and you would say, yeah, Brian, I'm I'm holding on, I'm holding on. I just want prayer to let go. If that's you, would you stand? If that's you, would you stand? Would you stand? I'm holding on. I'm holding on. I'm holding on. I'm holding on to something. Yeah, Holy Spirit was right, as He always is. Forgiveness, forgiveness needs to be released in this house. I had an 80 something year old man come up to me one time I was preaching this message. And he said, I've been holding on to a grudge with my dad and he's been dead for years. Tonight, I'm going to write him a letter and put it on his grave site. I want to pray for those who are standing, for those who are sitting. You have complete freedom. If you want to stand with them, put a hand over them, point a hand towards them, however you feel free. But let's just pray for our brothers and sisters who are standing. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for every person who... Is standing here just saying, I've been wronged, I've been violated, and I haven't forgiven, I'm still holding on, and I need the grace to let it go. I pray in the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you swell up in their lives, would you ease the grip they've been maintaining on the grudge, and would you open their hands to let it go? In fact, I like that image. If you stood because you've been holding on, would you just open your hands right now, just as a posture of, I'm letting it go. It's, it's just a posture. I'm letting it go. So, Father God, we pray right now in the name of Jesus that they would let go the betrayal. They would let go. The gossip. They would let go of being slandered about. They would let go of the lie that was told on them. They would let go of that loved one who didn't steward their heart well. They would let it go, Lord God. Even kids who have just been ungrateful and unappreciative and have just kind of been poking them in the eye, proverbially speaking. God, would you give them the grace to let it go and let it go? Even those, Lord God, who have who have died, Lord God, who have still wronged. God, let it go and may. May the levees that have been holding bitterness and cynicism and self-protection, would those just open up today in the name of Jesus, be depleted, and then, Lord God, replenish those waters now with grace and with joy and with love and with positivity, Lord God. Do it, we pray, in the name of Jesus, Lord. And then, Father God, I pray that they would do something even more difficult than standing here today, Lord God. Give them the courage, the sanctified courage to write the note, to send the text, to make the phone call, to sit down over lunch or coffee or whatever it may be, and to just say those three words, which are so hard to say, I forgive you, I I forgive you, I forgive you. No, we can maybe talk about relationship later. This isn't what that's about. I just want you to know, I, I forgive you, Lord God. May they say that, Lord God, we pray in the name of Jesus. And then, Lord God, I, I pray that they would know a dimension of you as Corey did. Corey Tinboom says, I just, I just never saw this side of you. I'm, I'm deeper in my relationship with you once I let it go. So, Lord God, take them from glory to glory. We pray. We ask these things in the name of your son Jesus. Amen and amen.